Today's text is Revelation chapter 13, verse 1 through 14, verse 5. You can find that on page 1927 in your pew Bibles. Now hear God's word from Revelation. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns and seven heads, with ten crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have had a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. Wow. The whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. People worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worshipped the beast and asked, Who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opens its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. All whose names have not, have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. Whoever has ears, let them hear. If anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with the sword, with the sword they will be killed. This calls for patience and endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Then I saw a second beast coming out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. It exercised all the authority of the first beast on its behalf and made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed. And it performed great signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven to the earth in full view of the people. Wow. Man. Because of the signs it was given power to perform on behalf of the first beast, it deceived the inhabitants of earth. It ordered them to set up an image in honor of the beast, who was wounded by the sword and yet lived. The second beast was given power to give breath to the image of the first beast, 
so that the image could speak and cause all who refused to worship the image to be killed. It also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hands and on their foreheads, so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man. That name is 666. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb. The Lamb? The Lamb. The Lamb. The Lamb. The Lamb. The Lamb. The Lamb. Standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven, like the roar of rushing waters, and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps, and they sang a new song. A new song? A new song. Before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders, no one could learn the song except for the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remained virgins. They followed the Lamb wherever he goes. They were purchased from among mankind and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They were blameless. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks, Thanks be, be to, to God. God. Thank you for that reading of God's Word this morning. Um, add to that, we began reading with chapter 13, add to that chapter 12 also. A um, little too much for us to read in one sitting, but um, chapter 12 is a story of a woman and a dragon, a woman who gives birth to a child, a dragon who tries to devour that child. Uh, hopefully you'll spend some time reading today. You may want to keep your Bibles open uh, this morning as well. Uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover. Let's just uh, put it that way. So brothers and sisters in Christ, I should probably just apologize as we begin because I know we have guests uh, this morning and probably online as well, family members who have come to celebrate Thanksgiving, that sort of thing. And here you are jumping into the middle of a series on Revelation. I can't recap everything that we've gone through. I won't even attempt to do that. But I will try to at least quickly try to set the stage for today. Um, last week we said that the end um, had come, at least within the book of Revelation. But we also said that the end could not come and God would not bring it about until the church added its testimony, its suffering testimony, its true witness to all of the judgments of God. What we said is that the judgments of God that fall upon the earth and that fall upon its people, those judgments are mute 
testimony to our God and our Creator. Just as God's in Reformed theology, just as God's general revelation needs also His special revelation or the Scripture to truly open our eyes to God, to truly reveal God to us, so too His mute judgments need the voice of the church, the testimony of the church to convert the nations. Okay, the judgments themselves will not do that. The church must testify. But then at the end of chapter 11, after the church had added its testimony to the judgments, we saw that the kingdom of God had actually come. Okay? The nations believed. The nations were converted, at least the majority part of them. And the kingdom of the world became the kingdom of our God and of its Christ. The kingdom had come right there at the end of chapter 11. So, now we get to chapter 12, and what do we expect to see? Well, perhaps we expect to see a picture of what comes after the coming of our God, right? We expect to see the picture of God's arrival here on earth, the new Jerusalem, descending from on high. We expect to see a picture of the final judgment perhaps with, with the wicked getting their just desserts and the righteous being rewarded with the new creation, right? That's what we expect. We expect to see perhaps a picture of the kingdom of God right here on the earth. That's not what we get in chapter 12. Now, we will see those things later on in the book of Revelation, but here we have to understand that chapter 12 does not fit chronologically right after chapter 11. Rather, in chapter 12, it's like somebody again hits the pause button and says, let's just hold on here for a moment and let's ask the question, what's that time going to be like when the church must witness and must bear testimony because it sounds pretty scary right this living out the testimony of jesus being attacked by the beast um, reliving the birth death and resurrection of of christ sounds like a scary time can you tell us more about what life will be like for the church in that period of testifying and this is what we get in chapters 12, 13, and even 14. It's a picture of that time in which the church must testify. That time between, or that season between the first coming of Jesus at Bethlehem and his second coming at the conclusion of history. It's that period of waiting, okay? Advent waiting, which we've already heard about this morning. Waiting for that Christ to return. And in these chapters, we're going to simply, we're going to try and condense them a bit, okay, which we need to do. And we're going to try to condense them to four themes this morning that I think um, emit themselves from these chapters. Let's look at um, these four things that I hope will help us to remain faithful and true witnesses to our Christ. The first theme is this. We're in a battle. Okay? We're in a battle. Not in the future sometime. Right here and right now. 
We are in a spiritual battle. Okay? This has been a hard year, as Brandon uh, said in his prayer. It's been a hard year, 2020. The virus, uh, it's not only taken thousands of lives, but it seems to have divided us as a people. There have been deep conflicts over race and justice. It's been a bitter election season, both pre- and post-election. And amidst all of this, right, I've heard people say, this is really hard. It's hard. It's hard to know God's will sometimes. It's it's hard to know how to act. It's hard to know when to speak and, and when to remain silent, even when I'm among my fellow Christians. Sometimes my emotions might get away from me and then I feel bad. I'm not honoring Christ. It's, it's really hard. And it is. Ben Patterson, the one-time chaplain at, at Hope College, wrote about that once. He said this. He said, we should not take it personally when we're attacked or tired or depressed. He says, things like that go with the territory. We're in a spiritual battle. He says, when a, when a soldier is shot at, he isn't shocked. His feelings aren't hurt. He doesn't peek up out of his foxhole and look at his adversary and shout, was it something I said? He plans on it. He knows it's coming. That's spiritual realism. And this part of Revelation, friends, is about spiritual realism. We're in a battle. And our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers and the authorities, and you know the text. It's against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. You can't always look at it and say, there it is. There's evil. Or there's evil. That's what I have to fight against. It doesn't always work that way. This was brought home to me again just recently. I watched um, um, a documentary, a docudrama, I guess they call it, called The Social Dilemma. Perhaps you've seen it. It's on on Netflix, I think. But in this film, a number of of high-tech experts who were involved in creating social media platforms, right, like Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat and Google Search, all those sorts of things, all of these people are actually sounding the alarm about their own creations. And there's some pretty scary stuff there. One thing they say is that we need to remember that these platforms are not out to promote truth and unity and well-being they are out to make money very simple they're out to make money and so the algorithms that these people have written were intended to get to know each one of us so intimately that when they set a button in front of us they can predict with a high degree of accuracy whether or not we are going to click on that button And so, here's something I didn't know. When when you do a Google search, or when any of us does a Google search, let's say it's on the topic of the election 2020, the results that I get on my computer are going to be different from the results that you get on your computer. Now, maybe I'm just a fool about this, but I seriously did not know that. Rather, what those results are based on 
our previous searches that you and I have conducted, previous websites that we've visited, things that we have spent a lot of time reading, um, things that we have purchased, places that we have gone, which we can also be tracked, okay? Google's going to point us to the articles that it thinks will interest me so that I will click on it. It doesn't care if it gives me a news story that's true or not. That's not what it's about. It's about getting me to click on something. And so if I have, you know, conservative political views, it's going to throw more conservative political articles at me. If I'm into conspiracy theories, it's going to throw more of those conspiracy theories at me. And as a result, the things that I read just tend to affirm and confirm and support all of my personal views, all of my political views. It's sort of like having your own personal yes man right there with you all the time. You know how it used to be just the boss who could afford you know, a company of yes men around him and he could say, you know, the sky is hunter green and everyone would, would go, yeah, yeah, it is. Way to go, boss. You nailed that one. Now we can all have our own personal yes man just one click away. He agrees with everything we think, everything we say. The problem is we never hear another point of view, right? I never hear what you're reading. You don't hear what I'm reading. You don't understand why I believe what I believe. I don't understand why you believe what you believe. You just think I'm crazy because I'm, I should be reading what you're reading, right? It makes sense to you, and I think you're crazy. What, aren't you reading what I'm reading? It makes sense to me. And we're just divided more and more and more. The point is we're not hearing the truth. These, these platforms are not interested in truth. All they're interested in is making more money. And so, back to the film. Here are these tech folks talking about this world that they have created themselves. They're talking about the algorithms that they themselves have written. They're talking about these social media platforms that have been infused with artificial intelligence and are sort of running off um, doing their own thing at this point. And then they say this, we never intended this to happen. What we created was intended for good. We thought we were doing something good. It was intended to help people. It's sort of developed a life of its own, and it's gone totally in a different direction, and it's out of control. And they might as well simply have quoted the words from Ephesians. This battle is not against flesh and blood. We're trying to do something good. Our battle is against the spiritual forces of evil. When you look at the people who have created these things, you don't say there's an evil person and this person was out to do evil. There's something more involved. And friends, that's the first thing we have to recognize as a church during this time of witnessing to the world and it's the fact that we are in a spiritual battle. That's the reason it's so hard. Now, the second theme that emerges here is the victory of God. It's God's victory. Okay? There is no doubt 
as to how this battle will end up. The evidence is overwhelming. And it begins at the end of chapter 11 with the sounding of the seventh trumpet. Okay? As we said, the seventh trumpet blasts the note of victory. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God and of His Christ. The end is decided. It's done. That can't be changed. That's the header of the paragraph. Okay? But then there are all sorts of supporting sentences that go along with that. For one, we're introduced in chapter 12 to the dragon who is a mighty and disturbing beast. In fact, he attempts to devour the Christ child at his birth. But what chapter 12 tells us is that he fails magnificently. And next, we see that there's a fight in heaven, probably a replaying of of the same scene from a different perspective, but there's a battle that's going on in heaven. It's a battle between the dragon and Michael, one of God's angels, but it's over just like that. It's over without any drama, and the dragon is unceremoniously tossed out of heaven. And then we're told in verse 12 of chapter 12 that the, the dragon knows that his time is short. He knows that he's beaten. There's not a lot of mystery here. God is the victor. And all of this is sort of like a replaying of Psalm 2. If you recall that psalm at all, God installs His chosen king on the throne of Zion, the one who is going to rule over the whole earth and rule with an iron scepter. We heard that in chapter 13. And when the nations and the kings of the earth rebel and try to prevent this king from taking up his throne, The one who's seated on the throne, God himself, laughs. In fact, he scoffs because there is no way that they can alter his plan. There is no way that they can prevent his chosen king from taking up that throne. They just don't have the firepower. But there's more. In the vision in chapter 12, okay, the woman who gives birth to the child, that woman is, is the church. Okay, it's a mixed image. It's a double image. Um, God's people or the church give birth to Jesus, and then Jesus in turn gives birth to the church, right? Well, in 12 verse 6, after reading about this giving birth and, and the dragon is not able to consume the child, the woman flees into the desert and she's taken care of in the desert, for 1,260 days. Now, I, to, I know that you were told this morning that there would be no math, but 1,260 days is the same as 42 months, which is the same as three and a half years, which is the same as a time, times, and a half of time. You will read those numbers. They go back to chapter 11, and they go all the way through chapter 13 and into chapter 14. Why is that important? Well, because back in chapter 11, we were told that the holy city, okay, the city of God would be trampled on for 42 months, 1260 days. And the two witnesses would prophesy in sackcloth for that amount of time. It's all the same period of time. The same period between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. That's the time when the church will witness. And during that time, the church will be trampled, it will be abused, but it will also be protected. The victory is God's. 
In chapter 13, the beast is given authority to blaspheme. He's given authority over the nations, again, for 42 months. Okay? And God's people will be chased, trampled, persecuted, perhaps even killed. But we are told again that ultimately they will be protected. None of those who have their names written in the Lamb's book of life will be hurt. Nothing and no one can snatch them out of my hand, said Jesus. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the beasts in chapter 13. There we find the dragon, okay, again. We find the beast from the sea and the beast from the land. Fearful beasts that have terrorized Christians for centuries. There are a few things we also need to note about these beasts. First of all, they're counterfeits. They're frauds. They're parodies of the real thing. Okay? They are a parody of the Holy Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, dragon, sea beast, land beast. And notice the first beast, what we're told about him. Chapter 13, verse 3. One of his heads seemed to have, a, have had a fatal wound that had been healed. Who does that remind you of? The lamb who had a real fatal wound but was raised. Notice the same thing about the second beast, chapter 13, verse 11. He had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. He was a dragon in lamb's clothing. Now look at 13.2 again, more parody. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. Remember again, Psalm 2, God gave all of those things to his son. Power, throne, authority. This is a parody of that. But remember the temptations of Jesus. The devil offered these very same things to Christ and he refused them, didn't they? Or didn't he? Because the only throne that Satan could offer him was trivial in comparison to the throne of God that he was already offered. And then there's this bit about the number, right? Six, six, six. And again, a whole lot of ink has been spilled over what this means. And I know that even last week on the video that we saw, um, it was talked how the, the numeric values of Greek names like Nero Caesar add up to 666. And, and I know a lot of people go that way. The trouble with that theory in my mind is that <clears throat> you can take just about any name you want and somehow you can make it add up to 666. Nero is one of those people. Hitler is one of those people. Stalin is one of those people. It's all been done. Ronald Reagan is one of those people. Barney the Dinosaur is one of those people. It's been done. 666, this is who it is. I just encourage you to use a lot, a lot of caution um, about going down that road. The view I like about this number, and I'll just mention part of it here, is the view that Peterson mentions in our book. He says that 777 is three times the perfect number. It's the whole number, the perfect number, the divine number. Each person of the Trinity is the perfect seven. 777. 666 is man's number. 
It's a triple failure at being 777. The dragon and the two beasts are simply parodies of the true God. And we need to remember that, friends, that they're failures, they're lacking, they cannot measure up. They do not have the power to give what they promise, and they do not have the power to tear you out of the hands of God. The victory belongs to God, and nothing and no one can change that. That's theme number two. With that said, let's go to theme number three, and that is the dragon and his lackeys are still dangerous. They weren't dangerous, we wouldn't read about them here. When the dragon is tossed out of heaven, what are we told? 12 verse 12, woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. 13 verse 7, we read that the sea beast was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them. Okay? That's scary stuff. And it should be. While we know that these beasts will not ultimately have the victory, we also need to remember that they are dangerous. And so we as Christians need to understand how we need to respond against them. Okay? So, our final theme for this morning is let's try to put those first three together. We're in a spiritual battle. The battle's ultimately already been decided and the devil has lost. And yet this unholy trinity is still very dangerous. So what do we do? Well, we fight. But how do we do that? It's a good question. Richard Baukamp calls uh, the book of Revelation a war scroll. He says, in it, the people of God are led into a battle or led into battle against all of God's enemies. However, the army of God is redefined in Revelation, where King David, you know, led an army that fought with, arm, or with swords and spears. The son of David arms his forces with something very, very different. Remember, we've seen that shift. The line of the tribe of Judah is also the lamb that was slain. And the lamb leads his army into battle, and he leads an army of witnesses. This is what we do in this period between his first and second coming. He leads an army that uses words, that uses truth. People who stand on the truth and endure Suffering that comes from witnessing in truth all the way to their own crosses. They follow the Lamb all the way to the end. That's how his army fights. Look at Revelation, or the words Revelation uses for how we fight. Verse 11 of chapter 12, They overcame the dragon by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They don't spill more blood. It's by the word of their testimony. Chapter 13, verse 10. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. Or verse 18, chapter 13. This calls for wisdom. Just look a bit closer at these, uh, uh, or at chapter 13 for a moment. And let's name our enemies here. Okay, The dragon 
if you notice, the devil himself hangs back here. Okay? He's, he's back in the shadows. He conducts the symphony from behind the scenes. He's out of sight. But he gives power, his power, to the beast, the first beast from the sea. That beast symbolizes, and we get this from the book of Daniel, that beast symbolizes a world empire. Okay? A world empire. And here, that empire is incarnated in the empire of Rome. But what we have to understand is that this empire is reincarnated over and over and over again. It comes in different forms throughout history. That's the whole point about this fact that, that the beast, you can kill it, but it doesn't die. It seems to have incredible regenerative powers, right? You put one to death and another pops up in its place. This is an empire that is anti-God, it's anti-Christ, it's anti-church. And it blasphemes. You heard that. In other words, it holds itself up to be God. And as such, it makes false, arrogant, proud claims. It claims that it can bring in the kingdom of God. It can bring in the desire of every one of our hearts. Peace for everyone. A turkey in every pot and maybe even a piece of pumpkin pie on the side. That's the first beast. The second beast, the beast from the, the land, is allied with the first beast. And this beast is like a prophet. Its job is to deceive people. Its job is to get people to worship the first beast, to offer it their total allegiance. The job of the second beast is to get you to bow down to the first beast. And if you don't, his job is to get rid of you. We know this about governments and empires, right? Think of the USSR just briefly. And why I hesitate to even use an example is because we think, well, then that must be the empire. And we forget that we are supposed to be discerning even today. But think of the USSR. The communist government promoted itself as the bringer of peace and well-being for everyone, right? And it had its own propaganda system to get you to believe that. For instance, there was a youth communist movement, all right? That was an organization which you were not required to join. You weren't required to join. It was by your free choice that you would join. But if you didn't, then you couldn't get into the good schools and colleges. You were frozen out of all the good jobs. And basically, you were fenced off from participating in the economy. You were sentenced to poverty for the rest of your life. You see... That was the intimidation factor of the second beast. It's to force you to worship the first beast. And if you don't, well then, you better accept the life that's ahead of you. And this is where John says, we need wisdom. Wisdom. Not to figure out the name of the Antichrist, but to see the character of Jesus and to know the character of Jesus so that when we see something different, we can say, that's not of Christ. By the way, let me just ask, how many times does the name Antichrist appear in the book of Revelation? Okay, take one second, look at the person next to you and take a guess. How many times does Antichrist come up in the book of Revelation? Okay, who said zero? You're right. Zero. It doesn't appear in the book of Revelation. It comes up a couple of times in John's letters. 
but it does not come up here whatsoever. You see, when, when John says, wisdom is required here, he's not saying so that you can guess the name of the Antichrist when he or she appears. What he's saying is you need wisdom to understand the character of everything that is anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-church. That is 666. Remember, Jesus came, what? To bring good news to the poor. These are the things we hear about at Advent. He came to bring release to the oppressed. He came to care for the orphan and the widow. He didn't come with lies and deceit. He didn't come saying that the, ends, or that the end justifies the means, whatever that means is, as long as it's a good end. That's not Jesus. We need wisdom to discern the truth about the character of Christ. When a government promises heaven, folks, remember 666, it cannot deliver. It will always fall short. And when you are told to get with the program, to get on board or, or be left behind, remember 666, the power of the beast is not ultimate. But it sure is scary. We've read about the persecuted Christians. We've heard about the church, right? In so many parts of the world, when they profess Christ, they're kicked out of the family. When, when they profess Christ, they're kicked out of their village. They lose their, their farms. They have no means, right? It's a scary thing. But remember, it's 666. It's not ultimate power. It can hurt you. It can even kill you. But it cannot snatch you out of the hands of God. And true wisdom, friends, knows the way of Christ. The church conquers by the way of testimony. The church conquers through patient endurance. It endures all that the world has to throw at it. And these are not passive responses to the beast. This is active vocalizing of the truth. This is active suffering in the name of Christ. This is willingly laying down our lives in the name of the Lamb in the interest of victory. It's not passively simply taking it. It's offering up my life for the Lamb because that's how the church is victorious. And this calls for wisdom. You see, friends, this is a matter of perspective. Everything in these chapters is a matter of perspective. Ask yourself, who are the real victors in this battle? Who are the real victors? Is it God and his saints? Or is it the dragon and his beasts? And it all depends on your perspective. From an earthly perspective, when you see those who are loyal to God to the end, when you see the martyrs being killed and going down, what's your answer to that question? It's the dragon and his beasts that are victorious. But remember what we heard last week. We hear it again in this chapter. The, the dragon will be given power to conquer the saints. But that conquering does not mean, well, the saints win some victories and the dragon wins other victories and, and in the end it'll, it'll turn out well for the church. What it means is the victory or the conquering of the beast, the putting to death of the martyrs is actually, flip it around, it's the victory of the martyrs and of God's church. That's how God wins. Jesus 
died. And then he was raised, right? It all depends on your perspective. Are you looking at things from an earthly perspective or are you looking at things from a heavenly perspective? Friends, we need that heavenly perspective, right? We need heaven to break into our earthbound delusions about the beast's power. And heaven does break in, doesn't it? Started at Easter with a hole in a rock. But heaven broke in. I think that's also the reason why when you get to chapter 14, you see a scene of 144,000 is the army of God, the victorious army of God, gathered on Mount Zion with the Lamb. And one of the things you read is that they sing a new song. Okay? And a new song was written when an army was victorious. <clears throat> the thing you have to know about this new song is Every other song that's mentioned in the book of Revelation is recorded. You can read it. Here we read that there was a new song that was sung by the 144,000, but it doesn't say what it is. You have to ask why. Well, when do we sing songs? We sing songs in worship, right? And in Reformed liturgy, we believe that God is present here and God speaks to us. And when He is present and He's speaking to us, we respond to Him and we often respond in song. What's being said here in Revelation 14, okay, is that God is present in such an incredibly close, personal way there's never been a song written or uttered to express that. Never been known before. Yes, Jesus came among us once and we have all beautiful Christmas songs and Advent songs. We've sung many of them today. But one day, we're going to know God's presence in such a real way that words today cannot be expressed or used to express it. But we do have the opportunity here to practice. Every time we gather together for worship, every time we sing a song of worship to God, we get a picture, we get a heavenly perspective of what really is going on here on the earth. And we find just a little more strength to patiently endure, to keep going, to keep testifying to the truth. No matter what our neighbors are doing, even no matter what our fellow church members are doing, we keep testifying to the truth because we know from a heavenly perspective that's how the victory is won. Won through the blood of the Lamb who gave himself completely to save us from our sins. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, these days are are not easy. And uh, Lord, some days more than others, we know we are in a spiritual battle. 
We pray that your spirit would make Jesus Christ so real to us that we may be strong and firm and faithful and testify in his name. And Lord, we pray for that extra gift as well, that gift of your spirit who who lifts us up to heaven at times and gives us a picture of what's going on there, that we may gain that heavenly perspective again and new strength in our arms and our legs and our voices to keep going and to keep testifying to our God and to the Lamb. Lord, may we never stop. Encourage your church. Strengthen your church. Because the beast is dangerous. He's deceptive. And we fall. Lord, pick us up. Give us a new perspective. May we be faithful to you in all things. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.